Hi, I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly. You're about to jump into one of our podcasts. If you want to find out more about this podcast and also all of the great content, drills, activities, games and advice on the website, then go over to www.rugbycoachweekly.net. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to uh, the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with a very special podcast indeed because I have two of the nicest guys in sports coaching science. They are smiling, so they still must be nice. <laughs> Dr. Mike Ashford and Professor Rob Gray. Uh, both are familiar to Rugby Coach Weekly audiences, and they are extremely well known in the coaching science worlds. Uh, more recently, during a robust exchange on Twitter, Mike and Rob decided it was high time to have a good old-fashioned chat, as if they were sharing a beer at the end of a conference day. Well, we can't create this conference or even grab a beer. Um, well, maybe we are grabbing a beer already. You're hiding that in a, um, a coffee cup uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've gathered them here into the virtual bar. So welcome to our conference beer, Mike and Rob. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having us, Dan. Uh, so if you can just briefly introduce yourselves. Uh, so Rob, just give us a little bit of background. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I very briefly, I'm a professor at Arizona State University. Um, I guess my other big claim to fame is I am the host and producer of the Perception Action podcast. Yeah, over 350 episodes <laughs> to, to work your way through and uh, well worth the listen. And over to you, Rob. Oh, sorry, Mike. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dr. Mike Ashford. I'm a lecturer at Coventry University in sports coaching. Um, and I'm also a coach developer for Grey Matters uh, UK. Okay, well, thank, thanks very much for that. Uh, I would also just add that uh, we're very lucky that both of you spend so much time sharing your work freely with everybody and wanting to be parts of the conversation. And I think that's extremely valuable. And we're very, we're very lucky that you, you do this. And I know that you're both very uh, open to discussion. Um, and uh, that's that's a great service to all of us. So uh, we're going to discuss a paper that Mike wrote recently, which reviewed some of the work that Rob's been involved in. Um, and uh, hence, we came up with this conference beer because Rob had a few comments back and it was we thought it better just to chat it through. Uh, so I think it'd be quite good to find out what... Uh, you agree on first and then discuss where there are differences. And I'm sure there can be moments where we're going to agree to disagree. Um, also, most of the coaches who are listening in will want to walk away something that they can hope they can make sense of in terms of their next session. Uh, but I'm sure that well, there will be some moments when we go into some bit of detail with the scientific language. I, I will try my best uh, in the show notes to make sense of some of those but that might indeed be part of the discussion in itself i know that you're smiling riley there mike uh, because uh, it is something i know that you've looked at as well so i'm going to start with you mike do you just um mike kicking off where you think there's some common ground here and then rob perhaps confirm this and then we'll just uh we'll, we'll take it from there so over to you mike okay 
I guess it it might be quite nice to start from the the reason why I asked Rob, I guess, to to interact in this on this domain across a, an actual discussion or debate, rather than just go around the houses on Twitter. If that's okay with you, Dan, is that yeah? Right? That's great. Um, I, I guess I guess if we look at mine and Rob's interaction following his review, it was Rob did the review. I was quite thankful in the first place. Um, asked if he'd like to interact in this format and then things exploded from there now whether that that's down to to what I wrote in that in that response or not um, remains to be seen but I just think uh, at the moment there's been no productivity on Twitter with the interactions that are occurring between different perspectives in the coaching literature and the, uh, and I think we're in quite a nice position in coaching at the moment that there is a lot of people who are interested a lot of people who are willing to read and a lot of people who are willing to interact. So I actually think we're doing them a disservice by going around the houses and especially getting nasty in comments on social media that are just quite unwarranted and unneeded, to be honest. So I guess it's quite a nice opportunity for us to express our differences, express some points of similarities um, and, and actually talk about coaching um, and talk about the mechanisms that underpin that. Um, which is what what I hope for anyway to get from today. I guess um, in terms of the points of similarities, Dan, like you asked there, um, I, I come at this topic very much from a, a coaching point of view as a coach. Uh, when I started my PhD um, exploring player decision-making in rugby union, it was because I was a coach who really wanted to support the development of my players' decision-making at that particular time. And I guess when I first interacted with literature within this particular area, there was no preconceived ideas. Um, it was actually launched by, um, after the 2015 Rugby World Cup, there was a newspaper article, I think it was in the Telegraph, that said Southern Hemisphere brains thoroughly equip Northern Hemisphere brawn. And it highlighted numerous on numerous occasions um, how the, the Southern Hemisphere's decision-making capabilities was far superior to that of the Northern Hemisphere. They couldn't give any reason as to why or how that occurs or what decision making actually is. And that's why I kind of embedded myself in, in reading and uh, I came across different perspectives. And instead of, I guess, choosing a perspective, my view was to look at the day to days of my coaching environment, the game, the laws of the game, and see where theories held up and fell down, if that makes sense. Um, and that's very much where I came at this from. Uh, since the systematic literature review, there's obviously been some work published in Rugby Union by myself, which has looked at exactly that, around considering different theories that match up to particular moments and situations in team invasion sports, which is where I think the there is some integration to be had. Um, and I think that largely rests on if players have time, if players, if the ball's out of play, if communication is occurring, then I, I do believe that there is indirect perception. There is some shared mental models at play, ways of thinking about how they're going to break down their opponent. Then when things become, when, when it starts to transcend into gameplay, that time becomes less and less. Therefore, it becomes more direct in nature. Um, and that is very much where I see the points of integration is not so much as they work at the same time in the same situations, more that the nature, 
the nature of team invasion sports by the laws that that guide them guide give different decision making processes at different times and moments and i think that is where moving forwards i do think some elements of integration can occur rob yeah so i'll start by mike i i just wanted to clarify, like I think the two reason that it's you and I here today is I just want to clarify. I, I think we're we're particularly good at avoiding the nastiness and explosiveness on social media. So when you said it exploded, I, I don't think it was me. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, no, I just no, wanted no, um, yeah. and got nasty. So I just wanted to clarify. Um, and I think that's why there's the two of us and not other people <laughs> that have volunteered to do this. But I just want um, yeah. So um, you know, I um so I, a couple points, you know, I, I, I agree, um, you know, there may be different. Uh, so one of the points I, I, I made in the paper is that and my, what, what you're describing, you, you're describing is not a, for me, not an integration of direct and indirect. It's an integration of offline versus online, right? So what's happening when the players are, when the ball's not moving, when there's a between plays, that's that's offline, right? Um, and once the ball starts moving and you're actually passing, that's often people call that online, right? And people have this kind of assumption incorrectly that direct perception is what happens online, right? Direct perception is what happens after the ball starts moving. Anything before then, like anticipating your opponent's tendencies, any effects like that, um, that is assumed to be indirect, which which is not correct. Um, direct perception can account for strategies, tendencies, things that happen offline in the same way that mental models can, right? So for me, that's the big problem I've had. People are, are confounding online, offline, and direct versus indirect perception, right? The fundamental direct uh, perception of direct perception, the fundamental assumption is that you do not need any to enhance any information using mental models, right? All the information for all the action is available in the environment. So it's logically not possible to, to have a direct perception, even if they're happening at different times, right? To, it's, it, it, it totally breaks the assumption of direct perception, right? Um, if you wanna use offline and a mental model, and then online use visual information from the environment, that's fine, but that's an indirect model of perception. So my fundamental problem, like, so I agree with Mike's view, like um, a lot of the paper, you know, was a great systematic review. They made an excellent point that the research is, how people are doing the research, the methods they're using, the conclusions they're coming up with are very biased towards their theoretical perspective, which was a great, um, you know, point to make. But I just have a problem with the integration part of it, right? I don't, if you believe that mental models and things are important, then you don't need direct perception, right? And, and I'm fully willing, if that's your view, then, then fine. But I don't think you can attach direct perception the way Gibson defined it, the way we use it together. Can you, can you help us out then? Uh, so I think we can work out where offline and online is to a player and perhaps to the coach. Can you give me examples of uh, what direct perception and indirect perception looks like for, for players? So direct perception is the idea that, you know, I can decide when to pass, who to, who to, who to play the ball to, whether to run, exclusively using information I pick up from the environment directly. I don't need to 
use my previous knowledge of former plays. I don't use to, to need to use predictions about the tendencies of opponents. Do a lots of processing and predicting. Directly, the environment, you know, Gibson's word affordances, I pick up these affordances for passing shooting directly. I don't need to do any additional processing or interpretation or prediction of the information. Um, if I do any of that, <laughs> then I'm doing indirect perception. That's kind of the, the way I would define it. Mike. And I guess, yeah, that's, that's where I, I have to disagree in the conflation between online and offline and direct and indirect, because I, I guess where I start from is this idea of the internal logic of a sport. And by internal logic of a sport, I mean the interaction between the preliminary goal, which in team, most team sports is to outscore your opponent, and then the constitutive rules that shape it. Uh, so the laws, um, and I know from an ecological perspective, that might be called organisational constraints that shape the way that people interact with that information. However, if I, if I look at moments in a game, so I'm going to use examples from my own sport here, which is rugby union. There are moments of the game, such as a scrum or a line-out, where the laws heavily govern the information that's being presented. So, for instance, in a line-out, you've got seven players who walk in and it's their possession of the ball. Uh, and the realities of that situation is they have a menu of permissible options uh, to go to. Okay, and that, that menu will co then come to a particular decision and they will try and outwit their opponent to do so. The laws of the game heavily shape in that moment, heavily shape indirect perception. Because you've got a mental model a shared mental model driving a particular menu. Now, that for me is very different to a ball carrier taking it to a defensive line or a footballer with a ball at their feet and the decision in a split second to make a pass where there isn't enough time to, to engage with any cognitive resource or any mental representation because the situation doesn't allow that to occur. And that for me, so we'll probably get into some stuff later around embodied cognition and situated cognition and radical approaches, so on and so forth. However, I, I think that for me, that situated element and the laws of the game governing those two instances heavily drive the nature of perception in those two instances. And this, this for me is where I come at this. I, I one of my biggest problems is when I get packaged as saying that I'm information processing as a perspective. I, I'm absolutely not. I, I I am a coach who's a pragmatist and looking at what works. And what I'm trying to do is look at the coaching implications. So what's the end product? What's being offered to coaches? And then go back to the mechanisms and look at what's actually going on here in order to then think, well, in these situations, this seems to be standing up. Therefore, these implications might be best. And in these instances, these might be. So these might be best. And that, that's one thing I really want to hit home is I do believe the laws and the, the internal logic of a sport have a huge influence on the elements of direct and indirect perception. Yeah, but you, you're making assumptions about how those laws get incorporated, right? You assume it has to be a shared mental model which is the information processing approach, right? In the line out or, right? You're making a theoretical assumption, right? I assume it's shared affordances, right? Through practice and experience, they've learned to incorporate in their motor control 
these these logic and laws, right? You assume it has to be a cognitive menu that I run through in a processing in my brain, which is a one way to do it, a theoretical assumption, right? I assume it's through calibration and learning control laws they've learned to incorporate, right? I've learned to incorporate in soccer that I can't touch the ball with my hands. It's a rule of soccer. I don't have to pull that out of my brain every single time I played soccer. My control law, information movement control laws have developed with that constraint and it shapes how I behave, right? It's in, it's in the information. So it's just, it's a different view. Like I'm not denying that there's not logic and laws. I have a different theoretical view than you do. And your, a lot of you say when it fits with what you see in the game, that's another point of contention in the article. It fits in the game with what players say they're doing after the fact when you interview them, which in the ecological approach, we place no value on that in terms of understanding what's happening in the moment. So it's, the evidence you use, you're saying this doesn't fit with this and it does with this. I would challenge the evidence that you're using to, to make those conclusions. I think that's a, a fair point, but I think it's a double-edged sword where I, from a methodological point of view, there's a number of points here that I want to get into that I've, that I've been mm. considering. Um, but the first one would be, as I highlighted in the systematic literature review, is that there are extreme problems in the validity and reliability of the methods we're using here across all perspectives to make sense of the decision-making process. From what I've seen from an ecological standpoint, and I absolutely applaud them for doing this, is the experimental design in which they take is, is trying to uphold Brunswick's nature of, of ecological validity and representative task design, fair play. However, a lot of the experiments that are occurring in this area are we are going to start with some premises that are theoretically driven. We're going to shape the experiment and those experiments largely confirm that findings. And additionally, that by trying to increase the ecological validity whilst maintaining some internal validity, those experiments tend to be segmented away from the true representative environment of sport. So if I give an example of that, a one versus one situation in rugby union, Whereas we know the game's 15 v 15 with a lot of different situations going on in a phase-like nature of the game. And so therefore, I don't think we can discount those findings. I think we have to view those findings in the nature of which they're, they're presented. Now, it, it's interesting to me when you were discussing the idea of online and offline, Rob, because you highlighted that offline information can be, be used to, to inform online perception of information. Now, I find that really interesting because Pedro Passos in his paper discusses the roles of DVDs, videos, imagery and self-talking. And obviously, this is a paper that's titled Manipulating Constraints to Train Decision Making. Now, if I think about those tasks, so instructional constraints, DVDs, videos, imagery, self-talking, those seem very heavily cognitive in my perspective. And... What I'm interested in is if we can use offline information to guide online perception, why can't we therefore use online information to make sense of online perception? Um, so we, to make sense of it is you're, you're, assuming, uh, you're assuming it's used to interpret process 
right? I'm assuming that offline information shapes your development of control and the pickup of information you use in your calibration. So you don't need anything else, right? Um, that's my, that's the theoretical assumption. Also, imagery, video, and self-talk can also all be used in a very ecological manner. They're not necessarily cognitive um, observation. Like all these, those are just methods. They're not approaches, right? Um, so again, it's just a different interpretation of the same thing, I, I think. Um, uh, it's just a different theoretical perspective. And you're right, like, so I would also, you know, the methods, I, I completely agree about the limitations of the, the condition study. And I think it's it's a progression, right? You have to break things down. You can't study the full game all at once. Um, so I think they're building um, um, in it, you know, going from uh, up, you know, level. And I also admit, you know, there's there's this, you, you're confirming the results. I fully admit that the ecological approach is biased, right? The, the way we do it, because the way that we do it is we start with the assumption, I can explain everything going on by looking at the information available in the environment. I'm never gonna resort to a mental model, never, ever, ever. If I can explain it, I'm gonna keep looking, I can keep looking, I can keep looking, right? So we're biased towards finding the information because sometimes it's hard to find, right? And if you just give up, and say that's a mental model. First of all, that explains nothing to me. <laughs> um, it, and then you give up the search for the information. So it is, I fully admit, it's biased towards explaining everything from this theoretical experiment. It's not trying, trying to incorporate it is violates the basic assumptions. Trying to incorporate any mental model or any offline, you know, offline, any mental model, any processing prediction violates the basic assumption I started with. So I definitely, I agree with that. And I agree, you know, there's a lot of work. The, the shared affordance idea needs a lot of work, right? It's very vague and, and I fully admit that. It needs a lot of development. It's, it's pretty new, <laughs> right? So um, it needs more research for sure. And I guess, um, sorry, Dan. Um, I guess you, you mentioned that I was making assumptions around the particular instances of the game, such as the line out. Mm -hmm. Now, Obviously, in my most recent paper, What Cognitive Mechanism, When, Where and Why, which explores the differences between university and professional rugby players, I do use stimulated recall, but I've made a conscious effort to mitigate the, it, the lack of validity of those methods by doing an ordered and random process with that and a classification process of the, of the actual thought and the use of uh, representation within that decision-making process. And what I wanted to touch upon was actually was actually a particular quote around the lineup from that particular paper. Now, I agree, just because people use mental models isn't necessarily the way. However, the reality is, is that international rugby sides, professional rugby sides use shared mental models in a lineup. And th this is where I come to this idea. They, of they say they do something similar to that when you ask them. You well, have no proof of what's going on in their brain when they're playing. Well, they say when you ask them about it, they say something that's consistent with a shared mental model. Okay, then. So I'm just going to talk through a particular quote and we can okay. dissect it. Okay. So this one is slow thought because it's a line out call. I've got to, time to think through our process and think about how they're setting up and which of our calls are likely to work best. Like line out calling is like a game within a game in that I'll look at their game video in the week leading up to the game and see how they defend. Then I know what options I want to use, 
Off the back of that, each line out then goes on to the next. So we've used this line out and it's worked well, then I know that they're following the dummy pod back. So that will set me up for another one. So you use one to set up another and so on and so forth. I'd liken it to a game of chess almost. Now with that particular quote, I might assume, however, the evidence that I've collected from both international and professional rugby players suggests that they have a menu of options that are given a particular common language and terminology. That terminology is communicated before going into the line out and then it's executed in terms of a timing and a cue. Now that might be an assumption, however, the evidence is pretty glaringly obvious um, from what we see, from what's done in the realities of a coaching world. And this is where I come to it. You started with the theoretical principles derived by Gibson. Okay, um, fair play, absolutely fine. I started with the realities of the coaching environment and worked back from there. Uh, and that's where the pragmatic element comes into it of going, well, you know what, the ecological approach really holds up in this area, but in these areas it really doesn't. And as you say, you, uh, I listened to your podcast with Andrew Wilson around, around um, the use of language, also the, the use of memory, but mostly around the tactics and strategy piece was you, you were quite openly in highlighting that there's limitations to the ecological approach in that area. And that this is where I come to it, where I think, well, wh what does the evidence say in those areas? Well, it suggests that teams in team invasion sports often use very rigid principles around how they want to play. Okay, they tend to use a common language and attach meaning to the words that they use underpinning that language. And that tends to guide where they look and what they do. Can I ask? Yeah. yeah, you say that they just execute it. How does that mental shared mental model lead to an actual movement? Okay, so for instance, um, uh, a line out caller will be given the responsibility of shaping that particular call. They'll go into huddle pre-line-out and they'll give an original call that they'll go to if, if the option's on immediately. And then they'll but give... How does it move the player's legs? How does it move the player's legs? Yeah. Well, they know... How does it create the motor command to my body to do something? Well, we, are we going to get into predictive processing? Um, that's, what's, or... that's what's missing in a shared mental model, right? There's no explanation of actual action control. And I couldn't agree more. And this is what I wanted to touch upon from the idea of integration. So you mentioned um, you mentioned before that uh, we already have a model, a, a continuum in recognition prime decision making mm -hmm. uh, that goes from slow and deliberate to fast and intuitive across the three levels. I don't think recognition prime decision making does a great job at explaining action. It doesn't really do <laughs> no, any job not at, at all. explaining yeah. action. Mm -hmm. it, and that that I think is it's a product of its environment because that was heavily done in firefighters in situational awareness in situations, which is right. We've got this broad, this broad situation. Now we've got to think about what's occurred before and so on and so forth. Now, I, I didn't want to get into this so soon, but I, I do think there is, th there is a theoretical perspective that we could tap into that perhaps captures both, the ecological approach and the information processing approach from the point of view 
of whether we need to or whether we don't need to interact with cognitive resources, which would be um, Carl Friston's idea of free energy principle, okay, and predictive processing. And I do it, th that predictive is a word that does not, it's like oil and water. I get, right? I get that. Yeah. However, if we actually look at the literature in that area, there is a lot of agreements in the embodied cognition literature around the idea that we do not, we are not computers. We do not have time to process information. We do not have the capacity to process information in the point of an action. However, okay. At times we do have to use active inference in order to come to a decision and, and act upon that decision. Now, irregardless of that, if we go back to the line out example I was providing, if the calls made and there is a queue and they respond to that queue in a coordinated rehearsed fashion, that to me is acting out a shared mental model. Okay. You, you, all you've done is describe how do they move? Do they, they change their acceleration? Do they close the gap between themselves? Do they, how do they move? How do they act? How do they create the outcome that they want from that? Well, so is it, a, they all share motor programs that they run off um, exact same movement? Well, no, it, it, do you want me to get into the neurophysiological element of it? No, I want you to explain how, when they make this decision about the line out, it makes them move. How do I know whether to go left or right? Uh, okay, so for instance, um, so an initial call, so I'm going to try and explain some rugby terminology here for you now. Okay. <laughs> I understand rugby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They have, yeah. You will always yeah. have lifting pods and jumpers. Okay. Uh, an initial call will always be, how do we take the shortest option and the quickest option? If they give us space in the middle, we go up in the middle. And that tends to be, okay, on the, on the line-out caller's movement, okay? So they'll either move, and that movement will initiate the lift, okay? Or they'll use a hand signal, and the ball will be an initiation of movement. However, if the information is not available, they will, a call will be made, and the second option will be taken. But you, you okay. still haven't described how we move. How they initiate, so initiate movement, do I just have a button that I press that makes me run? No. So for instance, the, the how, do I, how does it determine how fast I should run? The how do I know how fast it, I should run, you know, to well, close on the to run in a line out, to be honest, unless you're doing. Okay. I'm just kind of general. Yeah. How do I know, mm. how do I know which direction I should move? Okay. So it's rehearsed. They rehearse them. They're rehearsed. So they're all they're all just robots, like well, executing look, a rehearsed I'm explaining, plan. I'm explaining to you, as I've said before, the realities of what teams do in a lineout situation. Okay, so as I've said, the whoever's called the lineout, okay, will initiate a movement either through a hand signal, or through a jump, or from the lineout's throw, depending on whether it's at the middle or the back. That information yeah. would initiate the movement. Yeah. Can I, can I just uh, so can I just say sure. then so uh, just uh, so stepping slightly back from this, um, there is a very set play in play. But once you're actually moving in the line out, there must be a load of variables which are happening, like the opposition, uh, the way that the ball is thrown, uh, the thrower might not quite throw it correctly uh, for various different reasons. The lifters might not lift correctly. So. Um, 
where where are we with that? Because lots is then happening, uh, which yes, um, we know roughly that I've got to run uh, two two meters back. I've got to run two meters forward. I've got to jump at about this time. But there's a lot of um, things going on before that ball actually reaches those hands, and it might not even reach the hands. It might go slightly to the left or slightly to the right. And for me, that's where if a jumper's in the air, I very much doubt they're thinking through the movement in order to catch the ball. That, that for me, is where it suddenly changes. Um, the movement in order to get them there, then it's about the execution of the skill in order to complete it. Um, the, the shared mental model is simply to create the space in order to be there. Um, and like you say, <laughs> the capacity to... Uh, if we talk about perception action coupling okay if a throw is poor okay it, it, they're gonna have to react immediately and there's definitely not enough time to access mental like you say there's no computer going right now you need to move your hands here it is a coupled perception and action process because there's just not enough time to react so can i just uh before i get uh, rob to uh jump in here uh then I will, as a coach, I will uh, help my players come up with a line-out play. Uh, and this could be a play in any, any situation uh, in, in any, uh, any team sport. And then, um, so I, I talk them through it. They might talk to me and we might feedback. Then we go into some training situations. And then that's where I, I want to sort of understand how I can change what i'm doing to to improve what's happening so uh maybe uh, i've sort of not helped you jump in here rob <laughs> at all or you might be saying uh no i'm going to come from a different angle so yeah over to you yeah no no I, there's a couple points i raised one is i also like to distinguish between what's currently done in coaching and improving coaching mm. right what currently done yeah there's a lot of prescribed plays you do this you do that what I'm arguing in the ecological side is there's a better way to do it, right? So it's like, you know, finding evidence consistent with, um, you know, that we, we seem to learn things by prescription. Yeah, we're all taught that way, right? But I just think there's a better way to do it. That's one point I made. So say, seeing things done a certain way. Yeah, when you teach your, like coach your kid, your players like a military drill sergeant, you're probably going to see a certain pattern of behavior. But um but the, the idea here is, you know, from my perspective, we can either give the players plays or if you learn, you teach them to pick up the information, develop their own things, they'll, they'll find the best play themselves. That's, okay, that's so, the difference. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, watching American football, uh, the quarterback uh, picks up the ball um, and he looks for his options. So assume that uh, there must be the players have got to run in certain places in order for him to be safe to throw the ball to start off with and also for players to be in the right places so that you can't you can't just say uh here's a lineup of 11 players go you have to have some plays beforehand mm -hmm. there's constraints on you know where i can run in my position and what right uh they don't have to be implemented through a menu of cognitive options Right. I'm not denying there's effects of strategy, position, play, you, you know, that I'm just trying to I'm explaining a different theoretical. And it seems like from Mike's description, like 
direct perception can, is is a better explanation of most of action, right? So why not use it to explain all of it? That's what I, you don't need the other part in, in, in my view. You don't yeah. need the mental model part just because it seems to be post hoc, people's post hoc metacognitions about what they might've done sounds like a mental model. That, that doesn't mean that to me that it's what's actually going on in the game. Rob, what, what you were saying before about a, a good coach will support their players to find their own solutions. I, I just see that as really good coaching. So, for instance, if you if you if you're looking at a lineout or a launch play in American football or in in uh, rugby union or rugby league, they might go about finding their their best solutions given the action capabilities that they have as a group. Great. However, they might put a terminology on it. They might talk about where they're going to run those running lines. They might talk about where they're trying to exploit space. So the end product is still a shared way of thinking. And it's still a shared way of going about their business. So I think it's great coaching. However, in those moments that are quite controlled moments of the sport, okay, when the ball's out of play, when we're about to launch something, the, the share mental model seems the most parsimonious explanation. Whether they come up with it or the coach comes up with it. Here's my distinction. It's a shared after the fact description when they're reflecting on it is what's, what you're actually measuring in your studies. It's not a shared thing, process that's driving the control of action in the moment, So, which you don't measure. You have no way of measuring that. So, but neither do you. I, but I don't need to, because I don't assume that's involved. I, can, I measure the information, which I can directly measure in the movement. There's a gap is closing this, causes you to move like this. To me, that's a big advantage of the ecological approach. I live in observables. You live in black boxes that are unobservable. What if the description of the observable becomes matched? The description of the observable becomes so matched. Said, what you said about, I observe a performance. They don't see that performance then. They're not stimulated. They recall what occurred. And those two things are quite le level. What, what, what about that? So if a... I don't know. I don't know. If a player said, I, I, I run through the gap when it's getting bigger, you mean like after the fact? Yeah, after the fact. Or I turned around to my teammate, called a play using a piece of common language because I saw this information and they executed it. And that's actually what they discussed after the game. I guess it might be useful for reflection and discussion, but in order to learn how to do that, you need to be in the pick up the information and learn how to link your movements to it. So the fact that I can talk about it after and is not that's you know Gibson makes a that's knowledge about right knowledge not knowledge of and knowledge of is picking up the information to control your actions. Sorry, Dan, on, you, I thought Dan had his hand. No, up no, there. no. Well, I was going <laughs> to. I've got my. I pretty much got my hand up permanently. <laughs> uh, and it, it could be a ridiculous thing to say, but it seems that uh, constraints and shared mental models are and rules are they're all they're all the same because you you're saying it beforehand in order to lift someone up. There are the constraint is you need to have uh, two players uh, at a certain distance apart in a certain position in order to lift the jumper up. So. They've got to share a mental model if you want to use that, or the constraint is in order to uh, lift a player up, they have to uh, they have to be in these positions. 
uh, or is that uh, and, and it might be we're just um we're, we're saying the same thing the the only the, the point of difference is is how it actually happens is what is what uh, and that we can't control that perhaps all we need to do is either set up what's called constraints or a shared mental model and it doesn't really matter as long as the coach is saying roughly the same thing rob a shared mental model is something inside your head a constraint is something i can change on the field i can give you a different instruction i can use a different size field so wouldn't you rather want to manipulate the thing that's observable and there than try to imagine another point with shared mental models right in, in classic teammate i should be able to coach dan and mike separately give them both the same strategies and rules and you have teamwork when you get together because you both have the same mental model, right? You develop them completely separately. Whereas in the ecological approach, we, that would be a complete waste of time. Yeah, sorry. I, I know you're going right? to come in here on yeah. Mike. So just yeah. want to just uh, to sort of clarify my, my point in the sense is that uh, um, I can see it both working because the shared mental model is sometimes a, uh, a set of rules, rules of thumb where you say, if this happens, then this happens. If this happens, then this happens. And then as as it does happen then you adjust now how many times in a game of any any game you have a play a rough idea of a play and it goes completely wrong because uh lots of things happen so that's that's where i'm sort of seeing it but i, I again I, yeah, you know I, you I you've, 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 yeah. you've you've clarified the, the 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 difference but i just wonder if the to a certain like, extent the shared mental model and the internal logic of the game naturally is the same as constraints overall, though we might need to be careful how we, yeah. we explain so that. The, the fundamentals are going for implications for coaching. Like if I really believe the shared mental model is important, I should spend a lot of time in practice getting people to have an understanding of what to do, what to do next, of the rules of the logic, like Mike's right, verbalizing mm -hmm. it, using whiteboards to talk about it, you know, understanding the, the logic, the getting so that we're on the same page mentally, if this happens, we'll all do this next. Whereas if I'm the ecological approach, I, people learn that in the game, right? They, they pick up, they learn to pick up shared affordances. So talking about it, getting people to understand the logic of it verbally, can't explain it on a whiteboard is not useful. It's a different type of knowledge, right? So they're, they're not the same. <laughs> they, they have different implications for practice and what you should be doing in practice. Can I, t can I jump in? Sure, Mike. Uh, yeah. I think, um, I think there's quite a misconception of a shared mental model from a team performance element floating around at the moment, which is that everything, everything needs to be prescribed and controlled. Um, that's not the case at all. I, I see a shared mental model as a framework that allows freedom for exactly what we're discussing here, which is the ideals of, right, we're not going to be able to think about things in these moments of the game. So we're not going to put pre-prescribed elements around that there's freedom however how we might get to those instances might be driven by some form of tactical strategy now what i think is really interesting is you said that a shared mental model doesn't really account for the things whether the players the players do that on the field and i couldn't disagree more because we like a lot of the evidence would suggest and you see it on pitch the level of communication between players and the language that's used it tends to be common. It tends to be shared language. It tends to be meaningful words that drive action. Okay. Now that for me, those meaningful words is built through declarative understanding. 
So I've seen this information, I'm gonna offer you this terminology that has meaning attached to it. So I'll give, a, give an example. I, uh, I've been doing some reading, um, I think there was a paper recently around um, language from an ecological approach and it talked about starting with direct perception and then secondary perception and language working back from there. Um, and I, I said, well, what about if the, if the communication itself and the language is the information being provided to the decision maker? So I'm a fly half and I'm receiving the ball under a lot of pressure. I don't have time nor the capability to perceive visually the, di the, the defensive picture that's in front of me. However, my winger on the outside edge is, is shouting a call. So that might be it, the defence is stacked because the spaces between defenders are really narrow. I hear that. We know we need to get the ball there. The, there's meaning attached to it. It's a representation that's collectively shared through a common language. Shared mental model, but still coordinated and adaptive based on what the information is being provided. So that's where I do disagree with this idea that a shared mental model isn't built and developed by the players on field, in situ, in game-like activities, if that makes sense, Rob. Yeah, no, I think, I, 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 maybe I'd be afraid, I don't think a shared model is necessary to explain all those things you're describing. It's one way of explaining it, uh, auditory me saying pass that's an auditory piece of information just like a visual piece of information right i don't need a complex representation of the defensive layout of, of the four three defense in football or whatever to interpret that right it, it, i don't there's so i agree with you I, I don't think they're necessary to to explain their shared picks up of information shared affordances produces the same patterns of behavior as shared mental models it looks like people are doing the same thing at the same time because they're picking up the same information at the same time. So you're... What your assumption is they must be processing the same thing at the same time. My assumption is they picked up the same information from the environment at the same time. Why the need for a common language then? Um, it's information source, right? Okay, but it has meaning attached to it, right? The, they're simple. Yeah, they're simple. There's information, just like visual information is information. Yeah, but if we attach meaning to a word and that word initiates a collective response that is you, that you're no <laughs> when i say stop when i say stop is there a complex mental process and representation that gets triggered no but or i say duck i say duck but i'm talking here about teams players collectively building their own language to support the the perception of information in order to come to collective responses they come up with words that are shared so people can mm -hmm. see and communicate and then act on something accordingly. So if there's meaning attached to language, which we know exists in team sports, quite commonly, especially at the highest levels, they're collective representations. No, not necessary. It doesn't have to have meaning in a representation. It's a piece of information that gives drives an action, and I, I drives a movement. That that is where we'll disagree, Rob, because I believe, yeah, it, and it, I yeah, and that's fine, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's but my my whole my whole point, and in, in is there are different theoretical perspectives that cannot be mixed. So I'm not saying yours is wrong. Obviously, I have my view; it's wrong. But I'm not saying there's anything wrong with shared mental models. It's a well-developed thing. I'm saying you can't mix the two things together; they're incompatible. Whereas I, I disagree. I believe that. 
I'll give an example. So I talk about with, with the coaches that I work with, I'll always talk about a tactical sweet spot. And imagine you've got this bubble of tactics and strategy. Over here, you've got this tight bubble where players don't have much freedom to interact with each other. They don't have much opportunity for creativity. And all they want to do, therefore, is fight outwards. They want the opportunity to do what they want to do, to, to just act on information that presents themselves, to be creative. Over here, you've got this huge big bubble, okay? This big collective bubble, which is everyone can do whatever they want, okay? There's, there's still some form of framework outside it, but then you get players fighting back inwards. So a good example of that is in 2007, World Cup, England, uh, lost 36-0 to South Africa. There was a player mutiny around the way they wanted to play. They created some structure and some framework around they wanted to play and then made the final. What I'm saying here is, is a balance between the two. Okay, we have this, this way of playing, and then there's a lot of freedom and opportunities to just respond, whether you call that intuitively or through emergent decision-making, okay, but use creative elements. And I do think we have this top-down and this bottom-up element to working with teams and team sports around their decision-making. And I just think that's a, a reality of our environment that we work within. Yeah, I, I guess we're, I, I see like some decision-making for me is deciding what to do in the game. Whereas your what you described is changing intentions and, and goals for the team. Okay, so right? if, I, if I decide that I want to kick to post or kick to the touchline, or I decide on, I want to play more aggressively and, and yeah, attack. Based and on the information. Those are decisions, yeah. Based on the scoreboard, based on the based on the information, right? We've tried three line out drives, it's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. Therefore we're gonna to go to post. Mm -hmm. that, that to me is quite a, like that's logical. Uh, that just seems like the reality of it. The other the other thing I don't really like about is this decision-making as a discrete event, right? One of the things that advantage of, of the ecological approach is I'm controlling my action all the time using the spacing, tau information, and that leads to me naturally using that information to pass or shoot or run. I don't need this discrete event. I decided to pass or I decided to shoot the goal. Right? It's all part and parcel with the control of action. That's the emergent part, right? Decision-making is emergent. It's not some, it's not the predecessor to acting. In your, in your view, decision-making is the precursor to acting. Only at times. Okay. Only at times. So those instances are when I, I, I can talk to my teammates. I can ask them, right, what, how's it been going here? Right, what's the best option given the way we're doing it? Because we're trying to win the game. We're trying to outscore our opponents. Mm -hmm. At other times, it's not a discrete event because, again, we don't have time to process it. We don't have time to think rationally about memory. It just happens. And I, I think we need to create practices. And this is coming to the where I perceive coaching. If you ask me, Rob, from a coaching point of view, do I think the ecological approach is extremely useful? Absolutely. The coaches I work with, we talk about nonlinear pedagogy. We talk about constraints-led approaches. We talk about manipulating the conditions of the practice to allow players to come to their own solutions. However, they tend to be in, in situations when those, those ideas best present themselves. Small-sided games, 
offloading tasks, um, attack versus the defense elements. But then there's also this other part of the game and other situations where those just don't match up. And that, that's where I'm coming from. So, so if I could develop a direct perception theory that explains those other parts of the game, strategy, tactics, would you accept that it, it's oh, over? I'm open, and that's the whole idea of being a pragmatist. Yeah. I'm, I'm open to everything and skeptical yeah. of everything. But that's not integration, right? That's oh, replacement, right? But, that's replacing shared mental models with shared affordances. But I, I believe it is an integration because what I'm trying to do is look at the evidence that presently exists and the best evidence that describes what goes on presently. That's, that's always going to change over time if we do right. our jobs properly, right? Yeah. So what I, the story I'm getting is you can explain action satisfactorily without the ecological approach. You need it to explain, like, Dan, the situations, how you adjust perception. What my assumption is, yeah, I can explain all your parts with mine. I can explain all strategy, tactics with, by extending that. That's, that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to start, well, this is a really good starting point for explaining kicking, passing. So let's try to push this out into explaining everything. Okay, that's so what, first, what the ecological approach is really doing. Yeah. First things first, I think there'll, there'll be a lot of research derived from neurophysiology and neuropsychology um, coming in from the idea of predictive processing and active inference over the next few years, which is something I want to tap into and explore, but not just not look to confirm, but actually test. Okay. Uh, and that, I think that's a big, big thing is we have to confirm right, what's, the, what's our hypothesis and what's the alternate hypothesis? We have to find out whether something work or, works or not, not just confirm our, our, our original hypothesis in the first place. The second element is you were quite open and honest in identifying that the ecological approach is, is not doing a very good job at the moment at describing tactics and strategy. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, the realities of the sports coaching world, especially in team invasion sports, is that shared mental models do a pretty good job. And the reason why I say that is because South Africa, for instance, world champions, are probably one of the most structured, one of the most framework-based teams in the world. They're the world champions. So when we look at the, the internal logic, the laws of the game, that is a, part, a very strong parsimonious explanation for tactics and strategy. So why would we need an alternative? I would disagree. I don't think it explains anything. Again, it doesn't explain how you actually execute the play, the shared mental model. It doesn't get does you it anywhere. Work? It's what? So why it, does that? Why do those approaches to coaching work? Do they? Yes, because coaching. Like any. I'll, again, I'm trying to get better. I'm not trying to. Anything will work. Placebo works, right? We learn, right? Um, so I think there's a better route by developing in practice, manipulating constraints, the players picking up the information, developing, right? Um, you know, I'll give you an example of my sport. You know, people from all, all the time have been trying to train batters to make discrete decisions about this is a fastball, this is a curveball, this is a changeup. Yes, you get some improvement with that. I think a much better way would be to learn to pick up the actual information and link it to your movements, right? And so it's a, just a different you right and it's not that it's not doing a good job it's just we're starting we're pushing it into that area right so yeah so um are we saying that uh, one view would be set up your tactics and strategy via potentially a shared mental model and this works and it's worked for this team 
But uh, Rob, what you're saying is that perhaps um, that there is a different way of doing it yet to be fully tested. And this may be a, a better way of moving forward. And it, we might even not use the terms tactics and strategy in the future. And we might look back to 2022 and say this was the moment when uh, we decided to move away. Or is that is that being too is that being no, too far to maybe. one way? Again, I'm just I'm saying that's not necessarily what's going on, right? You think the great good coaches are developing shared mental models. They're also developing tons of shared affordances, right? By tons of practice activities with Let's Players Explore. So how do we know which one of those is is actually the cause of the greatest teams in the world, right? We don't. We don't. Uh, but right? I think that I think the 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 trick there is in the why. That it's the coaches making the 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 clue in coaching. We're not evidence based in coaching because we can't prescribe a dose of something and it immediately work. We're evidence informed. Okay, so the 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 trick in expertise for me in coaching is the capacity of that individual to make a decision at that time, given the individuals they have, given their biopsychosocial needs, given the wider contextual factors about what. And we only have two tools as coaches, right? The way we interact with the people through our behaviours or the way we shape and influence practice. Okay, so our decisions at that particular time, whether we choose to intervene to provide an instruction, whether you perceive that as an instructional constraint or just instruction, okay, that's still the decision-making process and it's the why that underpins that decision that's most important. And I, I do believe if we look at games and we look at the internal logic and we start to attach situations to practice and to coach behaviours, that is a much better way than going, this is the way we should be coaching. This is the only way. This is ab knowledge in an absolute fashion. I'm presenting knowledge in a conditional fashion. It depends on the context, the situation and the individuals I'm working with. Yeah, but you're 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 picking. I, that, that's the other problem I have. This the idea that you're more open and you're picking a side. You you assume, that. yeah, you are. If you assume shared mental models are evolved, you believe in indirect indirect perception. At times, so you game, and I also at, at any. That's the problem. It can't be at any time. Why not? Because Gibson because nineteen seventies. That's the theory of direct perception. That's but the, you're again. I'm not starting with the premises of a theory. I'm starting okay. with the realities of a sport, hence why I'm not picking a side. I'm saying that I want coaches to utilize nonlinear pedagogical principles, manipulate constraints, not give explicit knowledge. And then in other instances where it better represents itself to use shared mental models, to build knowledge, to use classroom environments. I'm saying that it's not an either or, it's a when and why. And yeah, I guess. Yeah. So, okay. so are we? Are you saying, Rob, that actually uh, coaches are accidentally using shared affordances uh, in the way that they are doing? They may say, "I'm using a, me a shared mental model," but actually, I'm using accidentally an e ecological dynamic approach. Um, and if they knew that they were doing that, they might do that more effectively. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For sure. Almost every great coach that I've worked with and met is already doing tons of this stuff. I'm just putting names on it <laughs> and putting a theory on it, you know? 
Um, but I firmly believe that you, I guess this is main place we disagree, Mike. I firmly believe that a consistent, following a consistent theoretical approach um, will have better results rather than trying to pick and choose a theory that fits when. And also, I don't believe that your theory is more representative of that. I, I believe that we just have to develop a description. Maybe, I don't, and I, as I said, my fundamental thing, I don't believe it explains anything. It's a post hoc description um, that I don't think explains and helps with anything. So that, that's, that's kind of, you know, what I'm going Rock, to. Can I ask you a question? It's a question I wanted to ask earlier when we were looking at offline and online. Uh, I agree with you in the fact that obvious, obviously agree with your offline effects influence online perception. Mm -hmm. Okay, hands down. But what I'm interested in is how does that occur from your approach? How does that actually happen over time? So I, um, I develop, uh, you know, we develop information movement control laws based on the interaction with the environment. Those control laws change with experience, right? So if I have one event occurring more frequently than the other, um, if I have different conditions, my control laws change, right? So I, um, I could develop, you know, if you want to get in dynamics system, develop attractors for certain states. And, and so it's a change in the actual information movement control law, not a change in knowledge or a development of a model. That's, that's the, the fundamental difference. So it, uh, experience, the, the, the statistics and the logic of the environment change how I develop my information movement control laws. So how does that work with instructional constraints then? Do people go away after receiving instruction and just not think about it or reflect on it or regulate to think, I really need to focus on that in this session? Does that not occur? So instructional constraint, you mean like, like the example I gave earlier, you can't touch the ball with your hands? Well, yeah, so instructional constraints. I know Keith Davids did a book around constraints that practice in 2008, mm. and one of the chapters in there looked at the role of instruction as a constraint. Mm. I'm just intrigued to know how does that work with what you just described as a offline to online perception. So a constraint takes away some movement solutions for, for me. So it shapes my control, the development how? of my control. So if I've received information and it's just through experience, how do I then take that information and actually, how does that actually have an impact on what I do next? It, it just, a, it's a source of information, just like there's a wall in front of me here that I need to avoid. I can't touch the ball with my hands is a piece of information that okay, around so which I'm going to develop my movement pattern. So let's think about that in a much more complex situation then for So for instance, scrummaging with some safety elements. Okay, the binding on a scrimmage. If mm -hmm. I provide instruction, I'd want that player to make sense of that instruction and think about what that actually means for their safety, wouldn't you? No, um, I, I don't. I don't quite understand. Why do they need to? If I can, they just know that's not something I can do. Okay, so for and instance, a scrimmage is obviously eight people against eight people the majority of whom are relatively heavy men okay mm -hmm. in quite a in quite a vulnerable position their their toes are dug into the floor their knees are parallel with the floor and their and their their hip hip to knee joint is at a 90 degree angle okay. all that vulnerability is also information you get from your body okay yeah exactly. through proprioceptive and tactile senses Absolutely. right you don't yeah, need a coach to tell me my knee is in a vulnerable position okay but you wouldn't want a coach to first first instruct and guide 
a safe scrummaging position. For sure. Yeah, the, that's what I do in baseball coaching. You're, you, you know, I try to give an constraint that push it takes away a solution that I think is going to cause injury. For sure. Okay. And I, I think that that's where the theory doesn't hold up in a sense that from offline to go to online in that instance, there has to be some form of reflection and sense making to go, what is a safer position to, for me to be in and how does that feel? N not in my view. Fair enough. Um, my view yeah. that takes away something and encourages me to try something else that I find through self-organization. I that, don't need to make sense of what safety means. Things are happening too fast. To, and, to, and that to me just doesn't make sense because we know that we, well, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that elite athletes engage in self-regulation around planning, uh, monitoring of their own performances, they're going and then reflecting and evaluating what that actually meant for them around particular areas of the game. So by your description there, those things can't happen. That's after the fact knowledge about. It's not because they're planning for their performance as well. A plan, you plan, a plan is an assumption, right? It, it, it's all like, that's all I'm trying to point. I'm trying to make it's all theoretical. You need theory to think about all this stuff. You need and, to, uh, you have a theory about how you, you sense making is totally a cognitive information processing thing. It's not involved in ecological approach at all. So you've picked a side. Uh, not at all. I haven't. How? If you say sense making is involved. So as a, coach, think... as a coach, if I'm mm -hmm. promoting the use of an ecological approach to practice design, have I picked a side? Um, yeah. If you're using that consistently and you, and you, you think where it's deemed most appropriate. Yeah, you've, you if, when you use you can't use an ecological approach with mental models. Well, I, I disagree on that. My, my other question is, um, I've got a quote here from Gibson that says, when I assert that perception of the environment is direct, I mean that it is not me me mediated by retinal pictures, neural pictures, or mental pictures. Now, what I'm interested in is Passos earlier on, so she, uh, the 2008 paper suggested the role of imagery and self-talking. And I'm just wondering, how does imagery then work if mental pictures can't be utilized in direct perception so there's a long uh there's a uh information there's a explanation of imagery i i have an episode on this if anyone's interested where there's a there's a couple good articles on it, it tied around the skilled intentionality framework um that has it, it takes it a representation free i don't want to go uh, take me a while to explain a representation free view of imagery right um so yeah, so there, there's ways to explain those other things. Like just like there's a representation-free view, non-predictive way you can anticipate things in the ecological approach, which sounds people think, what the heck are you talking about? But go see Strong Anticipation by Michael Turk. Um, you spoke about that as well with the baseball batting as well, didn't you? Mm -hmm. And I, like, I just want to say, I, I think in those instances you were explaining baseball and also the tennis paper that you gave, mm -hmm. a binary decision of... of forehand backhand makes a lot more sense with the time of the speed of the ball that's coming to me than something in where you've got 15 players with 21 laws that guide the game the 21 laws there are in rugby union and i think there's about 11 subcategories to each one of those and i cannot perceive a world where there isn't some indirect perception going on with the amount of complexity in that environment there okay. are some instances where there's some direct perception 
And that's where I'm coming at this from. But it, it's not direct then. It's online versus offline, right? As soon as you say you need to interpret it at any time, how do you know when you have to interpret it and not? Is it just when there's time available? Like, how do I know when to be direct and indirect? Uh, so from the findings in this, have you read the what mechanism paper that I've written around rugby union? Uh, I don't think so. No, no. So, uh, it was published in Frontiers last year, but what rather than obviously uh, telling players that they had to make classified decision-making processes emergent or mm. uh, so I, I, te I use slow thought, fast thought and no thought as an mm. example. And then to classify decisions in those particular areas. Now, this is where I'm coming at this from is there was there were quite a lot of no thought elements in there. Uh, so they classified their decisions as no thought. They had to do it in an ordered fashion. Okay. Again, Mike, we're, we're the same. It's post hoc description of yeah, what they're doing, which I place zero value. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, so, yeah, you can get stuff consistent with. Well, no, but what, what in the moment, how do I know whether to be direct or indirect? Okay. And what play is there certain plays, right? So, I, I have to have an overall monitoring process of the whole situation to know. Okay, I can be direct now, which is not direct perception. <laughs> no, but uh, the, the, if we take a situated cognition point of view, so if we if we look at the four E's from in, uh, embodied cognition, and we look at it from an embodied point of view and an embedded point of view, okay, the situation itself is going to drive the level of the, the need for the representation or not. And that is quite logical. If I have more time, to think about something, I'm going to think about it. If I have less time to think about it, I'm not. I'm going to act. Because everything is guided towards the venture of outscoring my opponent. And that is heavily logical in team invasion sports. I don't think we can treat sports as synonymous with one another. I really don't. I think no, and no, I disagree. I, certain the, the, sports lend themselves to more direct, less time, other sports, especially team invasion sports, like American football, that's phase-like, that start-stop, lend itself to more tactical and strategy appro strategic approaches. Both of which can be explained by direct perception, <laughs> which I, that's the difference. It I don't think that time... It what? hasn't been yet. It, neither has it been explained. Shared mental models ex haven't explained anything about a power football player runs. They both have limitations. You're has not explained action at all other than appealing to mine <laughs> um, whereas mine hasn't is still working to explain offline effects anticipation you know is something we've explained now right it's working it's it's a theory it's not been around that long right so yeah okay dan right well <laughs> i'm going to i'm going to jump in because i mean i think it has uh, been i think we're getting to a point of uh, where we're going to agree to disagree, which is which is great, which is fine, and absolutely why we wanted to come online. And uh, it's not certainly not the case of who's going to have the last word uh, in this, oh, because no, sure. uh, <laughs> and because none none of you are uh, in the game to have the last word. You want to just keep talking about it and explaining it. And uh, I hope that you've had a well. I know that uh, I've certainly been enthralled by. Not necessarily both sides, because sometimes we're we're together, and sometimes we're in 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 different places. And there's no doubt that uh, both of you are absolutely uh, 
determined to improve players and coaches' lives. Uh, mm -hmm. Just maybe from slightly different angles, maybe from quite different angles, which is which is fantastic. And that's that energy must be good, must be good for everyone. So I'm going to sort of uh, draw a line there. I'm not going to ask for any sort of last words, but what I will <laughs> ask is that. Um, um, apart from thank you very much lovely enjoyed my <laughs> beer and look forward to my next beer but uh, that uh, we will put uh, in the in the show notes a lot of the information that you've said here we want to point people mm. to because um, Twitter as we understand can never capture the depth of it uh, if people can read and read and read and listen and then that is that makes a massive difference. And in preparation for this show, I learned I learned a hell of a lot, and I'm still miles behind. So it's it's great. <laughs> so um, inevitably, one of you is going to have to say uh, the last word of uh, goodbye. But I'm going to go to you, Mike, first. <laughs> and it's that, thanks for having us. It's been it's been nice to learn as well. Like I, I'm not I'm omniscient of all approaches. Uh, it, like uh, I think one of the things is like it's just nice to take different views on board um, at the end of the day as you say I want to support coaches to become more effective so thank you for having me Dan and Rob it's been lovely to meet you mate yeah you too Mike and I this is this is how I love you know that we could do this this is how it should be done right we're building like talking to Mike I have lots of I, I I've learned lots about where things the explanations need to be improved and you know, think about things and, you know, look at the, all this, your paper inspired, although I disagree with it, like this is the way it's supposed to work, right? We bow back and forth and round and round. And, you know, so I really enjoyed this. Thank, thank you very much. No, well, thank you. Thank you both of you. And um, it was, uh, there were lots of smiles um, at sometimes <laughs> at, at moments where you're probably thinking, was I smiling? Uh, no, it's really, really good. And uh, it was very exciting as well. So, Thank you both uh, very much indeed. Well, uh, I, I will say thank you. I was uh, just very pleased to be able to bring you two together and uh, I hope that everyone enjoyed that. So as I said, um, the show notes, which will be on Rugby Coach Weekly, uh, but um, I will no doubt you two will want to, want to share that as well. And they will give you uh, places to go and read more about all the things that we've been talking about. So. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you to Mike and Rob again. And uh, hope you all go well. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.